Our second reading today is from Second Chronicles chapter 20. For your sake, I have not read the entirety of the chapter, but this is a very cool story, so I have included most of it. This is um, events that occurred in Israel's southern kingdom in Judah under King Jehoshaphat. And to set the context just a little bit for you, this is the same Jehoshaphat who was present in the previous passage that we read a couple of weeks ago with King Ahab, when Micaiah told of how he had seen heaven opened and the divine council deliberating on how to entice Ahab to remote Gilead to destroy him. And Jehoshaphat was a generally faithful king who reformed Israel, and he was blessed with surprising glimpses into the spiritual war that was going on around him. So this account is this account is the second of these glimpses. So Second Chronicles chapter twenty, these are God's words. And it came to be after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, and with them some of the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat in battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea, from Syria. And behold, they are in Hazozon Tamar, the same is in El Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek unto Yahweh, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to seek help of Yahweh. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek Yahweh. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of Yahweh, before the new court, and he said, O Yahweh, the God of our fathers, Art thou, uh, art not thou God in heaven, and art not thou ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in thy hand is power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee. Didst not thou, our, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and give it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If evil come upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house, and before thee, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, and thou wilt hear and save. This, incidentally, is the prayer that Solomon prayed at the inauguration of the temple. And now, behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned aside from them and destroyed them not, Behold how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before Yahweh with their little ones, their wives, and their sons. And then upon Yehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Yael, the son of Matanya, the Levite, of the sons of Asaph, the same Asaph who wrote Psalm 82, came the spirit of Yahweh in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith Yahweh unto you, Fear not ye. Neither be dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go you down against them. Behold, they come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the valley before the wilderness of Yeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of Yahweh with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for Yahweh is with you. 
And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before Yahweh, prostrating unto Yahweh. And the Levites of the sons of the Korahites and the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, with an exceeding loud voice. That is, they sang to God very loudly. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in Yahweh your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed them that should sing unto Yahweh and give praise in holy array as they went out before the army and say, Give thanks unto Yahweh for his loyal love endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, Yahweh set liars in wait against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir that were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the sons of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, every one helped to destroy another. And when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked upon the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and there were none that escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches and dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled themselves in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed Yahweh. Therefore, the name of that place was called the valley of Baraka, which means blessing, unto this day. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them to go again to Jerusalem with joy, for Yahweh had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with lyres and harps and trumpets into the house of Yahweh. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that Yahweh fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest round about. Father, thank you for the word that you have spoken to us. Please send your spirit to help me rightly divide it, distribute it to each of us as he has need, enlighten our minds to know its meaning, and cultivate our hearts that it may bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Amen. Please be seated. In the past few weeks, we have learned some surprising things about worship things that scripture takes as very foundational, very important, but which are not part of our view of worship in the evangelical world. Let me briefly remind you of some of what we have learned so that you will have a clear picture as we go into this final sermon, which is indeed on worship as warfare. One of the most central things that we have learned is that worship involves entering the heavenly court. There really is some kind of connection between heaven and earth in worship like a resonance, a sympathetic vibration between what is happening here on earth in our liturgy and what is happening in heaven. And when we order the timing and the sequence of our worship in the way that God patterns for us, it is like singing a note and heaven rings in response. We've also seen more recently that the function of the heavenly court is not merely to give praise and to have communion with God, but there is also judgment there. We've seen the divine council in action, and we've learned that the church is being incorporated into that council through our participation in the Lord Jesus. 
So part of our purpose in worship, part of our role in the heavenly court, involves judgment. It is our job to bring the earthly issues and problems that we face to God and to ask him to act on our behalf. We saw some of how that worked last time with the angels bringing the prayers of the saints to God and them being poured back down upon the earth and angels enacting all of the judgments. We are ourselves judging our neighborhood, our town, our region, our nation when we come into worship, participating in the divine council through our prayers. A final key is how God has brought the church into his council as a replacement for previous members who were kicked out because of their lack of obedience, their lack of wise judgment, their refusal to administer justice on his behalf, and their rebellion against him. These are the angels which he originally placed over the nations as guardians and tutors at Babel. God put them to open shame by triumphing over them and disarming them in the cross so that he could re-inherit the nations from them in Christ. But now we come to a source of conflict. God has defeated these world rulers covenantally. He has kicked them out of the heavenly court so their legal right to govern and to judge is broken. But he has not yet thrown them into the lake of fire. Satan can no longer stand in heaven to accuse us as we see him doing in Job or in Zechariah where he accuses Joshua the high priest. And he no longer has a legal right to rule the nations, but he has not actually been removed yet. He is not powerless. He continues to prowl like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. This is why the New Testament seems to give us contradictory images of what is happening in the heavenly realms. They're not actually contradictory, but it looks that way sometimes because it tells us that Christ has both defeated and disarmed the rulers and principalities and that we must defeat and disarm them by waging war against them. Think of Ephesians 6 in verses 10 to 18. Paul tells us, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, with all taking up the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, and watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints." holy ones. And you see here that Paul states without any real explanation that we are fighting against spiritual rulers, chief of whom is the evil one, that ancient serpent who John tells us in Revelation is the devil and Satan, and who he also tells us in 1 John has the whole world in his power. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in the power of the evil one. Now, just to anticipate a possible objection here, 
and it would be a good objection, you might say, well, that was written before the change of power was settled in the destruction of the old world, the old cosmos in AD 70. Since the creation of the new heavens and the new earth with the destruction of the temple, this new heavens and new earth that's coming out of heaven during the church age, Christ has all the power, and so the world no longer lies in the power of the evil one. But I don't think that is what is going on here. For John actually tells us that Satan was cast out, not in 70 AD, but even at the cross. Jesus himself says in John 12, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. And yet John writes later that the whole world still lies in the power of the evil one. And in another place, Jesus explains to us the parable of the sower, which surely has lasting application to our time. Here then, the parable of the sower, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth not, then cometh the evil one and snatcheth away that which hath been planted or sown in his heart. This is he that was sown by the wayside. So Satan has the power to take the the gospel out of someone's heart when they don't understand it. And hence Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, The God of this world hath blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them. And he instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, that the Lord's servant must not strive, but be gentle toward all, apt to teach, forbearing, and meekness, correcting them that oppose themselves, if perhaps God may give them repentance unto the knowledge of the truth, and they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. This is what Jesus is talking about also in John 8, when he tells us, or tells the Jews, that they are slaves. Do you remember that? This is a very confusing puzzling passage if you don't understand biblical cosmology. John chapter 8, Jesus said to those Jews that had believed him, if ye abide in my word, then are ye truly my disciples, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered unto him, we are Abraham's seed and have never been in bondage to anyone. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Now have the Jews really been in bondage to no one? Of course not. Even as they are speaking, they are in bondage to Rome, and the majority of their brothers from the northern tribes are scattered throughout the nations. They are speaking spiritually, I think, which is why Jesus tells them that through sin they are slaves to sin, and not only to sin, but as he says in verse 44, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father it is your will to do. What I'm saying is that the cross did not destroy Satan's spiritual power any more than being sentenced to death destroys a man's muscles. It is only when the sentence is carried out that his body becomes powerless. Until then, he can fight any way he wants, and if he has enough allies, that might look very ugly. It is Satan's legal power, his covenantal right, which is broken. His spiritual power... His ability to tempt and to deceive and to make people his slaves, that is still prison. It will not prevail because the work of the Holy Spirit ensures that it will not prevail. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than he is. But he is still the prince of the power of the air. 
Jesus saw him fall like lightning from heaven, but he fell where? To earth, right? He's still here. He is still a spirit of wind and fire, just as he was in the book of Job, where he could destroy houses with tornadoes and consume people with lightning. He is still prowling about, seeking whom he may devour, and bringing as many people as possible into captivity to his will through their enslavement to sin. If this were not true, why would we pray every week that God deliver us from the evil one? If he has no power anymore, certainly we need not pray for that. But he does have power, and so do the angels that he commands, and they intend to fight to the bitter end to maintain the grip that they used to have over the nations. And they especially hate us, because we are the disgusting, lowly flesh bags, creatures made of literal dirt, who God has seen fit to place over them, and who he is using to defeat them. Can you imagine how humiliating it is for a spirit of wind and fire, a literal god, to be defeated by a pile of animated dirt and then judged by other dirt bags and replaced as rulers by them and then thrown into a lake of fire to endure never-ending wrath and destruction while they enjoy glory and dominion with God? Now, of course, it is not our own power that does this. We are not defeating Satan and his angels by any spiritual power that we have. How could men like us fight powers and principalities? How could we possibly break their grip on the nations? How could we overcome their hold on people's minds? We don't even know how they do that. As John says, we overcome them because he who is in us is greater than they are. It is through the spirit of God in us that the principalities are defeated, not through our own power. In other words, it is not we, technically, who defeat these powers. It is God himself. He is the one who fights for us. We are simply the vessels through whom he comes into conflict with them. The sacred space where he mounts his offensive. We saw last week that the Lord's day is the same thing as the day of the Lord, so that when we come into the heavenly court and bring the affairs of our world before God and ask him to rise up and judge... We can have confidence that he will, because the day of the Lord is precisely the day when he does that. But it's also important to remember that when we speak to him of our nation, when we bring our rulers before him, for instance, they are not our true enemies. They may be acting against us. They may be acting against the church. They may be acting against God and his laws. But men like Chris Hipkins are just patsies. They are slaves to our true enemy, Satan, and to the principality of New Zealand who operates underneath him, whose main name maybe is Aotearoa, and the angels he commands in turn, none of whom intend to give up our land to its lawful king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why the spiritual nature of our warfare is of such great emphasis and such great importance in Scripture. If we were just fighting against men... We might have some hope of winning, at least some of the time, because men can fight men. But we are not fighting men. We are fighting principalities whom we could have no possible hope of defeating in our own power. And so God must fight for us. Now, God fighting for us comes to fruition in the gospel, but it is actually how it has always been. If you look at verse 15 of our passage today, it says, The battle is not yours, but God's. 
And this is the consistent pattern of warfare established in Scripture, especially in Exodus, when God establishes a people for himself. When Israel was formed as a nation in Exodus, 12, 12 verses, uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 to 14, we read this. I will go through the land of Egypt in that night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And there shall be no plague upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. Now it's easy to skip over certain parts of this passage as a metaphor. It's, we, we believe that God went through the land and he, he struck down the firstborn. But when he specifically says that he's going to execute judgments against the gods, we think, well, that, that's probably just metaphorical, right? He's just he's showing how weak their idols are. But it's very difficult to understand what it means for God to execute judgment among the gods of Egypt if they're not real spiritual beings. So what we're seeing here is that the Passover is the time when God judges the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, when he goes out and fights on behalf of his people against these forces of darkness in the spiritual realm. When he strikes the seed of the serpent in the spiritual realm, the seed of the serpent that is at war with his seed, the seed of the woman. And because we've seen that Passover is a major prototype for the Lord's Supper, this also means that there's a kind of pattern being established here where the Lord's Supper itself is connected with the judgment of God against Satan and his angels. I don't mean that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, God goes out and smites Satan. I don't think that the connection is quite that direct. But rather, because the Lord's Day gathers up the Passover into itself, and we enjoy the substance of the Passover, its fulfillment, the Lord's Day is also a time when we can expect God to act in judgment against the spiritual forces that oppose us. We see a similar kind of pattern in 2 Kings chapter 6. You may remember at one point the king of Syria was out to get Elisha, the man of God, because Elisha kept thwarting the king of Syria's plans by prophetically eavesdropping on his military councils and then telling the king of Israel what he was planning to do. So the king of Israel was always one step ahead of him. So to deal with this problem, the king of Syria gathers a great army and goes down to Dothan, where the man of God Elisha is staying, in order to capture him. And we read this. When the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host with horses and chariots was around about the city. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that are with us are more than they that are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Yahweh, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And Yahweh opened the eyes of the lad, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. But then Elisha has God strike them blind. The chariots of horses and, the horses and chariots of fire, they don't destroy this army. Instead, God has them struck blind. Elisha leads them to Samaria, into the stronghold of the king of Israel, whereupon we read this very intriguing, very New Testament-sounding conclusion to the story. The king of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? 
Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink, and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. Now, this certainly has a very sacramental feel to it. It's hard to imagine that we aren't supposed to see any similarity between this and the way that Jesus feeds people in the Gospels, nor to how Jesus calms his overly zealous disciples when they are eager to smite their enemies. Shall we smite them? Shall we call down fire from heaven? So, once again, this establishes a pattern in which spiritual warfare, which is to say warfare in the spiritual realm. When I say spiritual warfare, that's what I mean. Warfare against spiritual beings. Warfare that takes place in the heavenly places. There's a kind of pattern here that associates this kind of warfare with a sacramental pattern of eating bread. It's also not hard to hear an echo of Elisha's words in 1 John. Elisha tells us, they that are with us are more than they that are with them. And John tells us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is specifically in the context of overcoming spirits that do not confess Christ and are in fact antichrist. Now again, it is through the Spirit of God in us that the principalities are defeated, which is why Paul tells us to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit. But this hints at our role in this warfare. God fights for us, but he does not fight alone. He fights also with us. Because where does Paul use similar language to this in other places? He uses very similar language at other times. He says, Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, speaking one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody or literally plucking with your heart to the Lord. Like on a lyre, you pluck your heart. And again, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto God. And I'm sure that the first thing you noticed in our passage, well, maybe not the first thing, but I'm sure you noticed this in our passage today, the continual emphasis on music, both song and instruments, for praising God. When God speaks through Yahaziel, the choir praises in a loud voice. When Judah goes out to meet the enemy, Jehoshaphat places the choir out front, in front of the soldiers. And when they return from the victory, they return with trumpets and harps and lyres. The battle is bookended by music, but most importantly, the battle is conducted by music. And I don't mean orchestrated, I mean it is literally waged through music. Look at verse 22. When they began to sing and praise, at that very point, right then, Yahweh set liars in wait against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir that were come against Judah, and they were smitten. It is exactly when the song begins that God starts fighting. Jehoshaphat is a king. Kings are warriors in the Old Testament. So Jehoshaphat knows that you put your best soldiers out front to lead the battle. But Jehoshaphat has been told this is a spiritual battle. He's been told you're not going to have to fight. You're not going to need to use physical weapons. God is going to fight for you. That makes this a spiritual war. And so he puts his best soldiers out front. He puts the choir out there. The choir is right behind the true soldiers in this battle who are God and his angels. Now, 
I'm assuming that God fought through the agency of angels just because of how Scripture so often seems to assume or present that. But even if not, God is the one who is doing the fighting. Whether it's through angels or just by himself, he is the one that's doing the actual warfare here. And the point is that the choir is what represents this in the physical realm. Not the actual soldiers. This is spiritual warfare, not physical warfare. And spiritual warfare is represented, it is waged not with swords, but with songs. This correlation between music and spiritual warfare is a consistent pattern in Scripture. Do you remember last week we read Psalms 149 and 150, which go together as the final praise songs of the Psalter? And our focus then was on how Psalm 149 especially connects praise in the heavenly court with judgment, that the high praises of God be in their throat and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the nations and punishments upon the peoples, to execute upon them the judgments written, this honor have all his faithful. But Psalm 150, which comes right on its heels, emphasizes the manner of praise. Psalm 149 tells us what happens when we praise. Psalm 150 tells us how to praise. Praise Yah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his strong expanse. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his abundant greatness. Praise him with a trumpet blast. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with crashing cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. The whole orchestra is involved in praising God. Why must we praise God with music? Well, we've talked before about how music has meaning. The pagan Greeks understood music to have its substance, its fulfillment, like its, its actual archetype, in the movement of the heavens. You may have heard of the music of the spheres. That is what that's talking about. It's referring to the actual movement and constellations and what, what they perceive as gods. Now, obviously, I, I don't think that's exactly right. They were pagans. They twisted things. But their intuition is not completely off base. Music really does seem to connect us with the spiritual realm in some way. It first and foremost connects our own bodies with our own spirits. I don't know if you've thought about this, but we exist in the spiritual realm because we have spirits. We don't perceive it because we perceive through our bodies, but our spirits don't exist in a physical world. They exist in a spiritual world because they are spiritual. So music, first and foremost, connects the spiritual realm and the physical realm in us. It connects our own bodies with our spirits in a unique way. Through the body, we stir up the spirit within us. We unite head and heart, and through music we feel in our bodies the spiritual truths that are otherwise often confined to the mental world. And those truths become tangible to us. They they become audible to us. But it seems to go further still. In music, the resonance between spiritual and physical extends past us, through us, out of us, right into heaven itself, and stirs up God to act on our behalf. Scripture patterns this for us repeatedly. When the Israelites come into the promised land, what is the first fortified city they had to defeat? Anyone? Jericho. How did they defeat Jericho? Yeah, it wouldn't really be accurate to say that they defeated it at all, would it? That was spiritual warfare again, right? God defeated it. What they did was blow trumpets and shout with a loud voice. And when they did that, the city's walls fell down flat because God's angels crushed them. 
Now, what do you think they shouted, by the way? Scripture doesn't tell us, but let's speculate for a moment. When they blew the trumpets and they all shouted with a loud voice, was it just, rah? I don't think that fits with the pattern of Scripture, do you? I think it was probably something more like, hallelujah, praise Yah. Well, think about the New Testament for a moment. Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns unto God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. What a coincidence. So the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed, and the jailer, being roused out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and sprang in and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas are in jail. It's midnight. It's dark. It's a very miserable situation. They must be very tired. So they ought to be asleep. You'd think people, people who have been in this kind of situation, you just pass out, right? But no, they're singing hymns to God. I'm not sure that we would think of singing hymns to God at midnight. What's even more remarkable, the prisoners are listening to them. I don't think Luke means here that the prisoners are a captive audience and are forced to listen to them. I mean, obviously that's the case. I think what he is saying is that Paul and Silas are singing, and the singing is not just going into the prisoners' ears, it is going into their hearts. And right then, as they are singing, an angel of the Lord comes and breaks them out of prison. Well, that's a bit of a coincidence, don't you think? I wonder what they were singing. Probably, mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, maybe, in the original Aramaic. The connection between music and spiritual warfare is so pervasive in Scripture that it is actually treated as obvious. It's something that we ought to take for granted. God doesn't seem to think that it needs explaining, even though we really want to understand it better. His people don't seem to, need, to seem to think it needs explaining either. Luke takes it as perfectly natural, and so did Paul's servants hundreds and hundreds of years before. 1 Samuel 16, the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from Yahweh frightened him. And Saul's servants said unto him, Lo, pray, an evil spirit from God frighteneth thee. Let our Lord command, pray thy servants before thee, to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the lyre. And it shall come to be, when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and it shall be good for thee. And Saul sent out, uh, said unto his servants, Pray, look for a man who does well at playing springs and bring him <laughs> strings and bring him to me. Then answered one of the lads and said, Lo, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, skillful in playing strings, and a mighty one of valor, and a man of war, and perceptive in speech, and a man of looks, and Yahweh is with him. Wherefore Saul sent angels, that is messengers, unto Jesse, and said, Send me David thy son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a he-ass with bread and a skin of wine and a kid of goat and sent them by the hand of David, his son, unto Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him, now that he entered his service. And he loved him greatly, and he became his arms bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, sent to Jesse, saying, Let David pray, stay before me, for he hath found favor in mine eyes. And it came to be when the Spirit from God came unto Saul and David took the lyre and played with his hand, and it would be relieved for Saul and would be good for him, and the evil spirit would turn aside from him. Saul is afflicted by this terrifying spirit from God, and the first thing his servants suggest to solve the problem is to find someone who can play the lyre really well. 
a lyre is a kind of like a harp cross with a guitar. Why is this their go-to solution? They don't say, they just take it as obvious. Something about good music is detestable or troubling or just incompatible somehow with evil spirits. It stirs up God's angels and it drives away Satan's. It fortifies our spirits and it enfeebles theirs. I say good music because I think there is a kind of music that does the opposite, that stirs up the devils and troubles the holy angels and strengthens the unclean spirits and weakens our own. But Martin Luther captures this general idea well when he says, Music is a fair and lovely gift of God, which has often awakened and moved me to the joy of preaching. Music drives away the devil and makes people gay. And I say that in full conscience of what gay now means. Makes people gay, happy. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. I would not change what little I know of music for something great. Experience proves that next to the word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governess of the feelings of the human heart. We know that to the devils, music is distasteful and insufferable. My heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. Well, what can we say about all of this? What is the upshot and the application for us? How can we bring these things together? As with this entire series on worship, my intention is not to explain to you exactly what everything means and how it all works. The mechanisms are opaque to us in many cases. The connection between heaven and earth that forms the framework for understanding worship is as deep and mysterious as it is foundational. It is the bedrock of our reality, and to mine its depths and its glory cannot be achieved in a few sermons. It is given to us to ponder, to delve into throughout our lives. My hope has only been to reveal some of these important patterns to you, and hopefully to give you a kind of like a, a basic map so that you can explore them safely without falling into a pit. So I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that I have any idea the full extent of what all this means, how worship is warfare, exactly how music fits into it, what it does. I, I do not know. I only can tell you what scripture itself says. So let me summarize some of those key points. Firstly, Our worship takes place on the day of the Lord, which means that judgment is an appropriate element within it, and the day of the Lord is the day on which we expect God to rise up in judgment against his enemies. Secondly, these enemies are primarily spiritual forces, the powers and principalities in the heavenly places who still seek to maintain their grip on the nations that Christ is inheriting. Thirdly, all of worship is warfare against these forces in the sense that it draws us together in the heavenly court for mutual encouragement and strength around our great king. And Doug Wilson has said that worship, uh, that in worship that the earthly armies align with the heavenly armies, so worship is therefore like a force multiplier. And this is true in general. But fourthly, there seems to be a special sense in which the music of worship is warfare. It is particularly through our songs, through our melodies, through the sounds of our instruments that the judgment of God is stirred up and enacted in the spiritual realms. Now, we must be very careful not to reduce worship to music. Many churches do this. They call their music leaders their worship leaders. Worship is not just music. 
So it is wrong to call the man who leads the singing the worship leader. But worship does seem to find particular strength in music, in singing. William Law writes, Just as singing is a natural effect of joy in the heart, so it has a natural power of rendering the heart joyful. There is nothing that so clears away for your prayers, nothing that so disperses dullness of heart, nothing that so purifies the soul from poor and little passions, nothing that so opens heaven or carries your heart so near to it as these songs of praise. They create a sense and delight in God. They awaken holy desires. They teach you how to ask, and they prevail with God to give. They kindle a holy flame, they turn your heart into an altar, your prayers into incense, and carry them as a sweet-smelling savor to the throne of grace. We might say that if worship is warfare, music is the point of the spear. It is especially when we sing God's words, or like David, when we write hymns that flow out of our own reflections on God's words, that God himself goes out to war with us. And this is true in the Lord's Day service, but of course all of life flows out of the Lord's Day service. And so every day we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Every day we are resisting the devil, throwing down strongholds. And every day God empowers us to do this and works through us, especially in song. This is why the center of the kingly literature of the Bible is a songbook. Kings are warriors David was a warrior, and David warred through song. You think it's a coincidence that it was David who cast out that evil spirit from Saul with his music? Of course not. He's the one that wrote the Psalms. He understood the power of music. So my final encouragement to you as we finish the series on worship is to sing with zeal, sing with might, not just on the Lord's Day, but every day. Bring this pattern of worship into your weekday service of God, By singing to him daily, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, be filled with the Spirit, singing to each other. Sing in your families, sing in your homes, sing in your cars, sing in your workplaces, or whistle if you can't sing, and of course, sing in your showers. Make melody in your hearts to the Lord, knowing that in doing so, you are waging the good warfare, fighting the good fight. It is not the only way to fight, of course. You must have piety, you must pray, you must read scripture, you must walk in God's ways. But music is given to us as a special way of supercharging our religious devotion and spiritual service. Our regular pattern of family worship in the house tenant is to start with a hymn. You can find accompaniments to most hymns with lyrics on YouTube, which is great. So let us continue the pattern that we have started in this church of establishing a culture of singing, knowing that a culture of spiritual warfare is a culture of music. Sing grace before meals, knowing that Satan can't bear it. Sing when you are joyful, knowing that it carries echoes of Christ's triumph into the heavenly places and makes the devils shake in terror and dismay. Sing when you are sad and downcast, knowing that it creates a sympathetic vibration in the spiritual realms, thwarting every scheme of Satan and his angels as God works all things for your good and holds you with a hand too powerful for them to ever pluck you from it. Sing for God and gospel. Sing for king and country. Sing for the salvation of New Zealand, knowing that you are taking part in a great song that goes back to creation.
think of the words of the carol. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophet bards foretold. When with the ever-circling years shall come the age of gold, when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and the whole world give back the song which now the angels sing. <laughs> 